This is Shot Talk Radio, episode 50 with L. Luna. Welcome to Shop Talk Radio. I'm your host, Nick Onkin, and on this show, we're bringing you inspiring guests to dive underneath the hood of the creative entrepreneurial lifestyle to bridge the gap between art, commerce, and inspiration. What is up, Shop Talk Creatives? Today, I'm excited to bring to you today's guest, El Luna. Elle and I met uh, a little over a year ago through the Alive Tribe with uh, another podcast guest, Amber Ray. And Elle is a brilliant individual. And what I love about her is that she has the both sides of the brain. She has the sandbox, the, the very strategic side, and the very out creative mind. And together, she combines those to create amazing things in her life. Elle is a brilliant painter. She is uh, starting and kind of recreating the 100-day project, which I did with her a year and a half ago, uh, I guess on the second iteration, because that was Michael Beirut's first project. But she brought it to us last year. It's hashtag the 100-day project. It's what inspired my hand-drawn type uh, project on Instagram. You can follow me at Nick Onkin and the hashtag is hashtag Onkin Draws Type to see all my stuff. And Elle is a brilliant individual. She's an amazing artist. She started as a designer and redesigned the Uber app interface along with, she was also the lead designer on the Medium platform as well as Mailbox. And we talk about her transition into being a full-time painter and following her must instead of her should, which her new book is all about. I would recommend you check it out because it's all about following your must, what you must do in life versus what society and everybody around you has told you you should do. She also was a former designer at IDEO. So she is a brilliant human being. We talk a lot about the transition from doing full-time things to pursuing a career in art, as well as many other things. A little note for me, I just got back from a fun trip to Morocco, London, Germany, Denmark, and Sweden. I was traveling with my friend Usher, who also was is a Shop Talk Radio guest, shoptalkradio.com slash EP38. But with this trip really just changed my mind and opened my mind to the world of art, creating art, collecting art, and philanthropy. And that's what he is all about. We got to visit some art galleries. And we had many conversations about art and how he loves supporting artists. So this trip gave me a whole different perspective, even going into this podcast with Elle, because she's a brilliant artist. And at the end of the day, it opened my mind up to supporting other artists and even more creating my own art and taking that to the next level. I'm also very excited that today's episode is the 50th episode of Shop Talk Radio. We've been going for a little over a year now, and... And this podcast is all about helping you to activate your inner creativity and life optimization. So check out the show notes, shoptalkradio.com slash EP50. You can check out the photos we did of her and get all the links to what we talked about in the podcast. So without further ado, let's jump in. Welcome to the show, everyone. Today, we've got the amazing... L Luna in the studio today. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So excited to have you. And we met like about a year ago, actually a little over a year ago through Amber Ray, who's also a previous guest on Shop Talk Radio. We met at the, through the Alive Tribe. And L is a brilliant artist who followed, she used to be, you used to be a design. Well, actually I'm going to let you tell, give us the overview of your story, but we met in the mastermind tribe last year, the alive tribe. And we were on a, we spent a journey together learning to master and better our creative entrepreneur lives. So if you want to just, can you just give us a, a background? You're a designer and then you're embarking on this new book. And I want to talk about like where, how that was birthed and how you did that in a year. And then we'll, we'll go on to more, but give us a little overview. All right, we'll rewind. So uh, my journey starts in Dallas. I'm originally from Texas hmm. and I grew up in a family of lawyers. I have very fond 
memories as a young girl getting pulled out of school early to go down to the courthouse to hear my dad give closing arguments for one of his cases. And I remember sitting in the courthouse on this really, really old bench and seeing him go up in front of this whole room and give a speech, a very, very um, theatrical, passionate speech about uh, his case and his side. And as a young girl, that impressed me so much that then and there I thought, I should be a lawyer. I should do this also. Mm. So I grew up, went to college in Nashville, and at the end of college decided that I would apply to law school. I applied to seven law schools, and in the great gift of the universe, <laughs> I was rejected from all of them, one by one by one. And I remember thinking, how could this be? How could this be? And at that time, I had a, a very close friend who said to me, you know, you're living in the art studio. You slept there three nights this week. You are covered in paint. Have you ever thought about full-time pursuing your art? And it was this amazing moment where I realized, no. I never really thought that that possibility was, uh, I don't know, out there or possible for me and for my life. And at that idea, and also the fact that I really had no other options, I decided to apply to art school and I applied to two programs. And because the universe is magical, I got into both. And I picked one, which was in Chicago. And I went and that kind of tossed me into the world of creativity and making. So I started off making obscure art films and really weird mm. audio work, and then got into making books and graphic design. I then stepped out into the world of needing to make a living and pay rent, and so I became a commercial <laughs> graphic designer. And um, over the years, I, I worked at a design firm called IDEO. I started off in our Chicago office, and mm. after being there for about five years, along the way I transferred to San Francisco. I fell in love with the Silicon Valley dream of being able to ship things out into the world in three months, four months, six months. And um, so I shifted more into the entrepreneurial space. Mm. And uh, then I began working with uh, Uber, which is now everywhere, and uh, the startup Medium. Mm-hmm. And then I joined a team that was looking to revolutionize email on the iPhone, and that ended up becoming Mailbox. Mm. And around that time, at the end, I guess, well, really the beginning of Mailbox, it was launch day. I had been working there for about a year. It was launch February of, I think, 2013. And I was sitting at my desk on launch day, all of the metrics going well. The launch was wildly successful. Mm. And I remember sitting at my desk thinking, wow, I am 31. I'm slowly getting older and I can do anything with my time. Mm. Is this what I really deeply, truly want to be doing? Wow. And around that time, I, on nights and weekends, had begun picking up painting with a passion and a frenzy. Mm. And on that day, a very specific moment, I realized that I had a choice to make. Did I want to stay at this startup? Did I want to take that idea and put it on Android and all the other platforms? <laughs> Or did I want to give it a go painting and making art? And it was terrifying because who knew if that would work? Who knew about the finances? But I, I did look at my finances and I saw that I could buy myself a little bit of time to try to give it a go. And I quit. Mm. And that was a little while ago. And since then, it's been whew, quite a wild ride up and down. So now I'm more in the painting space and making art full time and learning a lot, running into a lot of walls, sharing a lot of that knowledge in the same way mm. that you are trying to figure out how to make this crazy life work, which is a wild journey, but man, I wouldn't have it any other way. Wow, that's that's a powerful story. And I, and there's a couple of things that you said I, I really love to dive a little bit deeper into. And, you know, when you made that transition, when, when you quit the mailbox team and, and realized that you wanted to go into, to be a painter, how did you, you saved up money, you made, how did you make that transition and then turn that into, turn fine art into money? Because that's a whole nother ballgame. Absolutely. Well, eventually what happened, I guess a year after that moment in the chair uh, where I realized that I had some choices that I could make mm-hmm. about how I wanted to spend my time, I eventually put it together into an essay called on Medium titled The Crossroads of Should and Must. Mm. 
And um, one of the things that I really began to think about was how when we are at a point where we can make a decision, there's really two options. One is is more of this path of should, what we feel like we should do. And one is this past path of must, which is what is um, has, has grabbed us, has, has caught us. Mm. And at that moment, it became very clear that, you know, working in a startup and painting were very different options and they were both equally appealing mm. for different reasons, but I had to choose. And the role of finances was a tricky one because at first I used it just to create a sandbox. I didn't look at my finances and say, ah, can I never work again? Mm. Can I just paint forever? It was no. Can I take money that I would otherwise spend on a dress or, you know, on a vacation or, you know, some sort of material thing? Could I actually take that money and do something more interesting with it? Could I use that money to buy time? Mm. And I think about that time as sandbox time. And mm. it wasn't it wasn't forever. It was literally um, there was a date circled on the calendar and it was like on that day, if I hadn't begun to make some money and if I needed to go back and get a full-time, you know, 40 hour a week gig, mm -hmm. uh, that would be the day. But until then my job was to play and it's actually really hard to play if you haven't been playing a lot <laughs> in your life, or at least that was what I found. Yeah. So that's how my dance with finances started over time. Uh, what evolved around finances was tricky because finances are so hard. We want to do what we love and ideally we want to get paid to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, but in the book, one of the things that I found as I started searching more about money and how other people have solved it is that there are three different types of work. And this comes from a TED talk by Stefan Sagmeister. He says, um, you can have a job, you can have a career and, or you can have a calling. A job is something done from nine to five, something done for pay. Mm. A career is a system of advancements over time. Mm. And then a calling is something that we do for intrinsic motivation, something regardless of pay. Mm. And hearing that really, really caught me because I wondered which ones of those I had Yeah, uh, with my work, with my projects, both paid and unpaid, where would things map across that spectrum? And it turns out that just because we want to pursue our calling actually doesn't mean that we need to quit our job because we have to have finances. We have to have an economic foundation to operate yeah. from. And maybe we're pursuing our calling full time and making money from it, or maybe those things are separate. Mm -hmm. Like for example, um, Philip Glass was one of the stories I came across and he was a taxi driver, like well into his time when his work was beginning to premiere at the Met here in New York. And he was a plumber and he did all these like odd jobs. And I actually imagine that all of that work that he did on the side kept him uh, in his home, kept mm -hmm. him safe, kept him like able to create work. Mm -hmm. And the more I began thinking about it, I, I started coming across all these other stories like T.S. Eliot, we think of him as an author. He was also a phenomenal banker in London. He was an amazing financial mind. He had an amazing career. Yeah. And I was like, look at how all these people did it. And sometimes actually not having your finances directly tied to your craft was a wonderful gift. Yeah. And other times having them tied directly to your craft. I mean, look at, you know, the genius of so many painters, Frankenthaler, look at um, Picasso, look at all these amazing painters, uh, having their job and their calling and their career all be one and the same is, I mean, it definitely sounds like the, the golden triangle yeah. to get there, but I, I don't know. I'm combining them in different ways. What about you? How are you? How do you navigate those three? Yeah. I mean, that's something I love to explore is because I, I have what I call, I like to tell people like, you got to have a, a capital job. You know, it's just like you're saying a capital job so that you can have capital to pay for your time to go practice your craft because it takes years to get good at what you do enough to the point where somebody's actually going to pay you for it. And then you can start working, okay, like how for me with photography, it's art and commerce. And a lot of times the art jobs are different than the commerce jobs. And the commerce, sometimes, most of the times you're either actually doing it for one or the other. So for me, the goal is to be able to do it for both and have like get paid for something that I really resonate with creatively. I love that. You know, early on when Instagram just started, I came across the work of Paul Octavius. He's a photographer mm -hmm. based out of Chicago. And he was doing this series on Instagram titled 
hashtag same hill different day. Do you know this series? He basically mm. sets up his camera at the base of this gorgeous kind of mundane sloping hill, just mm. one hill. And he photographs the same hill on different days of the year. And one day the hill will be winter and you'll see it covered in white snow and little specks of color, kids in their ski jackets, like sledding down the hill. On another day, it'll be summer and you'll just see the sky filled with kites. Mm. And I remember following along on his Same Hill Different Day series, and I don't know what he was doing for a full-time gig. It wasn't Same Hill Different Day. It was like this side project. And I was at IDEO at the time and we needed a photographer for a project that I was working on. And I followed him on Instagram. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, the spirit of Same Hill Different Day would be fantastic for our client. Mm. And so I called Paul, we had a phone call with our team and in that moment, little light bulbs are going off in my head like, oh, this is how we do it. Mm -hmm. Like, do what you love, post it, get it out there. The spirit of how much love and joy there is in that work mm -hmm. is, is palpable for the viewer. Yeah. And then, because everyone wants that palpable joy and love and energy in their work, yeah. other people will hire you for it and then they'll pay you for it. And I just remember thinking like, Paul has figured it out. He's got it. <laughs> I, and I think that's, that's such a great example of like, just keep doing it and do it for free. Do it, just get it out on like your social feeds in a way that's affordable, right? Like Instagram's a great way to get things out. Yeah. And then over time, uh, if, if it resonates with other folks, they'll hire you to do it. It's, I, uh, yeah. Paul, Absolutely. He yeah. did it. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's about doing, doing it for you. Do, yeah. doing it because it resonates with you and your heart and and it's the the project that you want to do for yourself and unless you're doing projects for yourself you know you're not going to build a portfolio that's going to get you hired totally get you hired totally. yeah it's like i remember uh reading in just kids by patty smith she was talking about uh when patty smith she's a an artist and robert maplethorpe her partner love i guess of of her life uh he was a photographer when they were very, very, very broke living here. And I think at the Chelsea Hotel, they're living here in New York. Mm -hmm. They, he could only afford, you know, so much film in his camera, like mm. one roll at a time. And so every shot was so important. And yeah. he put everything into that roll of film. He'd get it developed. He would look at the shots and immediately he'd pick up the one and she'd say, but how do you know? How do you know that's the one? And he said, Patty, this is the one with the magic in it. Mm, there is great. something that's like other dimensional about work that has your deepest, rawest passion in it. It's, yeah. it's, you can just see it. You can pick it out of a, of a set. Yeah. We, you've heard that term je ne sais quoi, right? And that's exactly what you're talking about. And I've heard that we've used that term in photography because a lot of times it, it is exactly what you're talking about where you look and you, there's a photo that just has something about it that makes it magic so that's what you know i feel like we're all supposed to be looking for in our art or creating and it takes takes a process how long did it take you to when you were painting you started painting to the to where you started getting recognition and people started to actually pay for it um that's a great question well maybe there's so much vulnerability that mm -hmm. goes into i mean okay so I'm sitting at my desk. I'm at this startup. I know in my deepest, deepest self that there isn't even a decision to be made. It's, mm. it's so obvious. It was riskier to stay at the startup than it was to pursue my art. And after I left, even though it was the naively obvious next step, mm -hmm. it was still terrifying. And it was hard and I was confronting all of the voices inside of my head, which were my largest competitor or um, hater or whatever, you know, horrible monster. Mm -hmm. Like it was all the voices in my head saying, that stinks, that stinks, that stinks, that's no good, that's no good. They're all going to laugh at you. I mean, over and over again. And finally, yeah. you know, you just sit down and you're like, all right, voice in the head. We, you are getting out of control. <laughs> I'm no longer going to tolerate this. Like enough. you got to stop. Yeah. And what began to happen over that over time was eventually as my confidence got a little bit higher, I started really sharing all of that work for better and for worse on Instagram. Mm. And like my, my feed went from like 
you know, shots like wine glasses in Sonoma and, and like, you know, really <laughs> modern architecture from downtown to like crazy art. And, you know, the dog's covered in paint and there's paint on all my <laughs> pots and pans and I'm making these like enormous murals that I have no idea what I'm doing. And uh, eventually I posted on Twitter, does anybody know of like a, a good site they'd recommend to sell work? Mm. You know, can somebody give me, you know, is it Squarespace or Etsy or, you know, what do you recommend? And a friend on Twitter said, I'm not sure what the best site is, but I'd like to buy it from you directly. Can you please send me the prices for these two pieces? Mm. And I think... I don't know if it, maybe, I don't know. You can talk about your experience. I just never assume, you know, you just think like, Oh, I could never do that. I could never really make art full time. And then you think like, I can't sell this. Nobody wants this. It's like constantly you're just like, Oh, I felt like I was just putting myself down. And then you get to a point where, and now it's been a number of years where I've been selling stuff. Mm -hmm. I, I put things on Instagram and I find people who connect with it in the way that I connected with Paul's work. And yeah. then I just have them email me. Oh. And then I connect with them and then I get to know them. Like this one woman bought a, a, a very, very personal painting of mine that I wasn't going to sell. And mm. she emailed me about it and she told me, and I told her, I was like, it's, it's not for sale. And she wrote me and said why she had to have this painting. And Nick, she got it. She totally <laughs> got it. And then in that moment, you're like, oh, the, it's not even a decision. Like the painting's already yours. You yes, it's you, please buy it. And so she, we shipped it to Canada and it's now up in her home and she sent me a photo of where it's located. And there's something about uh, Instagram and Twitter and just like the, the democratic egalitarian nature of sharing mm. your things directly one-to-one -one without having a middle person. Yeah. That's so powerful mm. because then you get to know directly the community of folks and you're not only impacting their world, but as you get to know them, they're impacting mine as well, which is the great gift because then it's, it's, it's backwards and, and forwards. It's mm. coming full circle. Yeah. Wow. That's, yeah, it, that's amazing. It's amazing how social media has changed the game of art and commerce. I mean, how did you, how did you start? I mean, you, you were, you have a lot of connections in social media. You're working for a lot of people. So is there, is there any sort of method that you've used in terms of Twitter and Instagram that has helped you? Um, right now, I'm participating in this project called the 100 Day Project. And it's basically a social media manifestation of mm. um, a class that Michael Beirut used to te teach at Yale. Yeah. And um, there are all of these makers on Instagram who are participating in this project Mm. And some of the people who on like, we, I, we just started, I think uh, maybe two weeks ago. And if, if it's still going on, I encourage people to jump in and join. Um, I guess before the project started this year, there were people who had maybe 30 followers on Instagram. Mm. And there's this one woman, her name, her name is Mary Lowe. She's post, oh my gosh, you have to check this out. She's posting these wild little mysterious videos. They're mm. like 15 seconds each. And she's basically in her for in like this forest behind her house. And she dances to these like obscure old songs and wears masks and and wears these fantastical dresses and puts lampshades on her head and invites friends to pop out of the forest. And they each have a theme, like one last week was around grief. Hmm. Oh, it was incredible. They're like these little 15 second performance pieces. And What's happened to Mary Lowe's account is over time, in what, two weeks, her account has grown because the people who want to be seeing that kind of work mm. are finding her and connecting with her work and then introducing her to other people who are like-minded, who yeah. also would appreciate wacky, mysterious performance art. And her, let's call it a tribe, is growing in such a powerful way where I, I think now she has a couple hundred followers. Mm -hmm. Her tribe of a couple hundred followers is um, voracious. Is that a word? Voracious? They're hungry. They're, mm. They love Mary Lowe. Yeah. And they're sharing the word with other people who they know would love Mary Lowe. And that is um, the best technique I've found in my social media experience, there's it's one thing just to have followers. 
-hmm. It's another game entirely when you're connected to the right people, when you're connected to the right community who, like just the other day I posted one of my 100 day project images, which was 100 days of painting my dreams. And it was this um, wonderful dream about wind. Mm. And somebody commented in the comments about um, another book where they talk about wind and to go and check it out. Mm. And the fact that the folks who are there and, and kind of participating in this, this game that I'm playing mm. are, um, are on board, like the content elevates mm. and then my work is going to get greater and then their comments and their interest is going to grow and, and their projects are going to get stronger. It's like the entire community when it's knitted together appropriately yeah. rises together. And um, I think that's been the most thoughtful mm-hmm. way that social media has grown for me and my yeah. practice. And I do see Instagram as the ultimate gallery now. I mean, your work is incredible and you're posting all of it, like your process shots, you're showing your tools. That's, I remember thinking like, oh my gosh, I can't believe these, you know, amazing artists are going to tell us all the tools they use and the paints they buy. It felt like they were revealing all their secrets. Yeah. And, you know, to know and like see your setting and your studio and your space and know kind of what's going on. It helps imagine a world for other people who want to live that life too, or step into their own passions in their own life. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's definitely, I think a way to, it's, it's the easiest way to get things out there. The best way it's so digestible and like one little just snippet of a moment. And it's interesting like how there, there's so many other mediums or like social media things that are coming out. And I, I love Instagram because of the fact that you can just get your stuff out there and you can curate, you can curate like a, an aesthetic and a look and, a, and give people behind the scenes. And, and it, it does, it really, I, I put a lot of my, my social media channeling into Instagram. Mm. So it's been great. And uh, your project last year, actually when Nick and I were together in on our retreat for the Alive Tribe, mm-hmm. we, um, I remember telling Nick and the group about this idea of the 100 day project. Yeah. And I said to everybody, I really want to do this, you know, basically a a new manifestation of an old project Mm -hmm. and, or not old, but you know, previously done project, Mm -hmm. but you know, I I couldn't do it alone. Yeah. And there were so many hands that went up. (laughs) I'll never forget that we were sitting in this room and, and one person said, well, I'll do it with you. And Amber, I'll do it too. And you're, I'll do it too. (laughs) And in that moment, it was so overwhelming this idea that this movement that I really, really wanted to happen, it couldn't, it, it simply could not happen on my own. Mm. It couldn't happen just with me. I mean, I guess it could have, but it would have been silly. Yeah. The fact that everyone came together and everyone participated and dove in was a totally new understanding of what community looks like for me. Yeah. And that then rippled out and inspired so many other people. And I, it just comes back to this idea of tribe and your, uh, your, your closest family mm-hmm. that you commune with, you know, day in, maybe yeah. not day in and day out, but weekend and week out. And this idea that, you know, ups and downs and, good times and bad, that, that group is like buoying with each other. Absolutely. Yeah. You totally inspired me with that project. And when we jumped on it last year, I didn't even, I was like, Oh my God, can I do one thing, the same thing for a hundred days straight? What am I going to do? Will you tell about your project? Yeah. I'll tell it really quick. Um, I did that a hundred days of hand-drawn type because I was in, getting interested in, in drawing by hand and experimenting with that. And this is actually like the greatest catalyst to be able to practice and I did it and I started doing it and I was, I kept it up. I did a hundred, I think I missed one day out of a hundred days uh, in a row. And it, you know, it showed me that, A, I can do it. Um, you know, I have the focus to do it and it was just inspiring. So it was inspiring to be in the community and for other people who were like, wow, I really, this, this was like perfect. This quote was perfect for me today. Or, you know, it really resonated. It made my day. It changed, you know, that like the feedback and the community, the conversations that were going on around it. And people are like, Oh, I want this on my wall or I want to, I want on a card. And so, I mean, 
that's given me the ideas to, you know, for the stuff that we're working on now with the, with the new lifestyle brand to integrate some of that. But, but yeah, that was a, it was a powerful project. So thank you for bringing that to the table last year. That was great. It was, I remember how scared I felt bringing it up. I was like, nobody's going to want to do this. What's with this voice in my head, (laughs) man. Um, the, that project. Wow. 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 And now it's, I just checked the other day. We're almost at a hundred thousand posts on Instagram and we're only like two weeks in. That's crazy. Isn't that wild? So what would, now tell me how you started the, this new, the new one that you started that that was through Instagram. It's still an Instagram based project. There's a lot of people doing it on Twitter, but Instagram is really where it's all growing because it has to be real visual, really fast. And Twitter, you have to expand the images. I wish, I wish that Twitter and Instagram would be more friendly to one another. (laughs) I know, right? The, uh, the, I mean, it was just the same thing. Like, let's do it again this year. It was a year later. I emailed Mm. Amber. I mean, literally this started, you know, in a room with a bunch of people sitting around wanting to do something fun together. (laughs) And I emailed Amber and I was like, let's do it again. Yeah. And we kicked it off in April and the great discontent, um, a magazine about creativity and risk. They offered some editorial support. Mm. They are based here in New York and they, uh, brought in, um, a lot of, I guess, extra helping hands to Mm. kind of cull through the submissions that were coming in and then to help generate a newsletter. It just, it's become a big thing and trying to harvest stories and, and float things to the surface is a full-time gig. And so there's actually an amazing woman. Her name is Carly Ayers. She's helping uh, curate you know, what she's seeing happening on the 100 day project. There's a whole like family now (laughs) that's, that's sifting through all this stuff. So it's become sort of a thing. And it's, I, I think it's, it's like a love affair for everyone who's doing it. It's all, you know, volunteered time. And we end in July and we're hoping to have some sort of, um, an event details TBD, uh, this summer. Wow. Well, check it out. It's hashtag the hundred day project, right? That's it on the IG. So I want to jump back to one thing that you said earlier before we kind of move into talking about the book. Um, You talked about the sandbox and building Mm. a sandbox. I'd love to get your perspective on what that actually means and how people can apply that to what they're doing. I love it. A sandbox is a place where you design very specific boundaries around it. Maybe it's finances, maybe it's time, maybe it's a location. And within that space, you let go of the need to have outcomes. You let go of what you think that you should do. And you just give yourself permission to play. Mm. And that was really hard for me to do. Yeah. Um, So some of the factors that I considered and I'd recommend other folks to look at is to say, is there a space within my home that I could make kind of a messy space or a sandbox space? Maybe it's a table or maybe it's a cart. Maybe it's um, a room. If, if you have an extra room, that's nice. Or maybe it's just like a candle mm. that you light. And like when the candle's lit, that's like sandbox time. And within that space, um, maybe you're doing it full time and you know, let's say you had a two week vacation from work. Could you spend that two weeks totally dedicated in a very regimented way to play? Mm. Um, or let's say you have an opportunity to have a sabbatical or maybe you just have a weekend Mm. say like, okay, beginning Saturday morning, it's like play boot camp. I know that sounds so strange to like (laughs) put put all these prescriptions around play, but if we don't schedule it, if we don't really demand focus when we're in there, for example, solitude or music, but like no repair people, no, no people running in, you know, asking favors. This is not the time for those situations. This is just your uninterrupted time to play. And when it comes to play, one of the great great instigators of play that I learned when I was at IDEO is to create some sort of a basket or a cart Mm -hmm. or a, I don't know, with a box filled with things that are playful. So at IDEO, they had this cart that was filled with like pipe cleaner and watercolors and wigs and like weird sunglasses and 
poster board and glitter and stamps, all of this bonkers stuff (laughs) collected into one cart and it would get rolled into a room for projects. And there is something so interesting when you sit down with Legos or like just put the computer away, Mm. close it and put it in another room. No computers allowed. Get in there with your hands. Maybe your sandbox is just actually entirely in nature. Maybe you spend one weekend in an Airbnb in the woods. Mm. Maybe you are, you know, literally getting your feet into sand. You are feeling mud in your hands, whatever it needs to be. It's, Mm. there's, it's, the goal of it is to connect to that, um, more intuitive energy. It's sort of like your brain will answer one way and then your gut or your um, intuition might answer a different way. Mm -hmm. And it's really kind of trying to, trying to um, step away from the mothership as a friend of mine said, he's a writer and he's like, you know, when I'm writing, I feel like I'm, I'm really far off in space and I'm, there's the mothership and I'm getting outside of the spaceship and I push off. Mm. and I can watch the rope unfurl, and I'm drifting off into black velvet space. Wow. And going out into that space, designing it somehow, and then when you've had enough or when you're ready or when you're tired, to say, okay, I'm going back to the mothership, and to not necessarily have an objective, but to know that once you push off from the mothership, once you go into that sandbox, mm-hmm. have faith, trust the fact that you will gain new insights based on your experience. Mm. And I think, I don't know, I feel like this idea of productivity is such a thing. Mm. And you know, when we get together like, oh, I had this meeting and I went there and I did these six things and I had 10,000 workouts and you know, there's this wonderful <laughs> um, appetite that we have around productivity. And I don't know what not being productive is, but actually uh, there's this wonderful quote, I can't remember the book, but he says, even non-action is action. Mm. Is an old Buddhist teacher, obviously. <laughs> even non-action is action. So this idea of going into your sandbox and actively not acting um, and trying to quiet those voices from the brain and like kind of the lizard brain, fight, flight, fear, mm-hmm. all those things, and sink into uh, you know that, that black velvety space. And if you can go into that uninterrupted for an evening, mm-hmm. fantastic. If you can do it for a weekend or a day, oh, that's wonderful. If you could do it for a week or for two weeks, amazing. Mm. I think beyond that period of time, like once you get into like a month or six weeks or beyond, maybe three months, you probably have to design a slightly different rhythm yeah. because it's, it's, it's pretty intense to leave the mothership, mm-hmm. especially if you're kind of going into this space alone. Yeah. You have to design... Um, you know, what that looks like. And you, you do have to connect with the rest of the world. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, that, that's, that's kind of how I think about a sandbox. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. And I think that's very useful for people to be able to, you have to set boundaries and you have to be able to like create a container for you to play in. And that play is going to accelerate and catalyze your art and, and you're going to find new inspiration. And, getting away from the computer is so huge. It's hard to do your phone, get away from the phone and and just unplug for a minute and like create. And that's, it's, that's huge. So thank you. I I guess one, how, how do you, how's your sandbox changed from when you were leaving your job to now where you're a little bit more established in the, in the painting world and the the fine art world? The sandbox has to be flexible. Mm. The sandbox changes over time. So, at first, when I just had, you know, these this stretch of time on end to play in my white room, my, my studio, that's what I call it, the white room, mm. I really played around the clock and really was in that sandbox a lot and really struggled. It was hard. I mean, it's a the creative journey is a battle. Yeah. And you're really ultimately battling yourself. And the, I think the work, especially early on, shows that struggle very, mm. very um, viscerally. And over time, the sandbox, I realized um, I was having a conversation with my friend and I said, oh no, 
I, I'm going to be traveling. I'm going to be doing all these other things that I, that I had to do. And I said, but what about my white room? And she looked at me and she said, ah, you haven't figured it out yet. And I said, figured out what? And she said, your white room isn't a space that you go to. Your white room is a space inside of you. Mm. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. So the white room being a space inside of me ultimately led me to a, an interview with Brancusi, the sculptor, mm. and uh, Lieberman's, the artist in his studio. Well, that's interesting. The artist in his studio, I guess he didn't interview any women. Maybe back then there, there weren't that many getting interviewed. But um, Alexander Lieberman wrote a phenomenal book called The Artist in His Studio. And one of the artists he interviewed was Brancusi in the photos. You have to check them out. They're exquisite. He had this like uh, kind of old barn cathedral space mm. up here in New England. And inside these tall, tall sculptures and the light filtering through was so austere. They were just, oh, it felt like lifetimes in the stone and in all the work. And in the interview, uh, Brancusi said, it is not difficult to make things. Mm. What's difficult is to reach the state from which we can make them. Wow. So, so much of my sandbox now is daily routine, mm. morning routine that creates the space from which I can make. So wow. for example, I try to wake up without an alarm. That's not always possible, but I do try <laughs> Like if I go to bed, I, I trust I'm a big sleeper. I love sleep. Yeah. So if I like really go to bed eight hours before I need to get up, my body will naturally wake up. If I can afford that luxury, I do it. It's a very different way to wake up in the morning without an alarm. Yeah. Then I do morning pages. I think this is also an activity that you do. Yes. Yeah. I kind of actually just started it more recently. Really? Yeah. It's kind of a new thing. Can you explain what it is? <laughs> uh, it's, it's a, yeah, it's a, um, a ritual practice of writing, free writing without the editor and just going and whatever comes out you write because it helps you to access flow. Yes. And yes, it's three pages. Sometimes I don't get all three pages, but I'm being okay with not getting all three pages. That's good. That's you having a nice dialogue with the editor. Yeah, <laughs> <Nice>. exactly. <laughs> uh, so that's the idea in theory. I'm still working on it, but. <laughs> it's uh, it's a, something I do in the morning. I have a little Ikea kitchen timer and mm -hmm. I, I don't leave home without it. I always have it with me. And um, I set it for 16 minutes. Mm. And really the morning pages starts at 15 minutes. I time it. She's Julia Cameron. She started this activity from a book, the artist's way. She says not to time it just to do the three pages, but I really like the timer. It keeps me focused. Otherwise I'm off on Instagram or doing something else. So <laughs> I set the timer for 16 minutes. So that gives me one minute to like grab my notebook, get into place, get my pen and then get going. And I, I do morning pages and I have a coffee and I usually do some sort of either meditation or, um, a version of, of prayer. Although it's yeah. not technically praying. It's more just L stuff <laughs> and, um, have some sort of an experience in nature, something grounding in nature, even if that's just, um, like with a tree or something very simple, yeah. those things combined create the space from which I can make things. So even mm -hmm. if I'm on the road, like right now I'm on the road, um, no matter if I'm in a hotel room or if I'm on um, trains or planes, I can do those things. Yeah. And whether I'm sitting in a window seat or on a train seat, I can pull out my, my paints and pens. So now my a sandbox is essentially like an on-the-go sandbox. Mm, yeah. And I use that timer. Mm. And I set that timer. I, I'm reading every day. And I set my timer for my reading and then I'm writing, I set my timer and then I'm painting. So those mm. are the three, the three verbs. And those three things are what's in my sandbox. Yeah. And if I don't do those three things, things get out of control <laughs> very quickly and I become a unpleasant person to hang out with. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh no. It's, it's one day it's kind of like slippery. Two days it's whoa. And three days it's, it's really no bueno. Yeah, I got to get better at doing that when I'm on the road. <laughs> mm, it's tricky. It's tricky. Yeah. 
Uh, well, let's get into the book. <laughs> I feel like we're, we're like, there's so much to talk about. I don't, I don't know what we're going to do here. Um, so Elle has her new book out, uh, The Crossroads of Should and Must, which is an amazing book and it's beautiful. She's illustrated the whole thing mm. and it's very amazing. So you got to pick it up, but let's just kind of get into it. First thing I want to start out with is how, like when we met a year ago, a little over a year ago, I don't even think the book was a concept and I know from when I did my book, it was it took like a year to actually write it and and do it, and then it took them another year to publish it and get it to actually find to print and launch it and all that stuff. So how did you? I mean, how did that happen? I just don't know. A, <laughs> a, a lot can happen in 365 days. Uh, when we met, it wasn't an idea on my radar either. I I hadn't even written the post. Wow. Right? Right? I don't think so. Or you may have just written it, I think. We were there in March, and then I wrote the post on April 8th. It was right oh. after we, we met and hung out. So I, I guess two years ago mm-hmm. was when I stepped away from the full-time startup gig. And it was basically because of a recurring dream that I'd been having uh, when I would go to sleep. And this had started uh, many months before. And in this recurring dream, I would go into a white room that had uh, concrete floors and really tall white walls Mm. that almost seemed to be glowing. They were very surreal white walls. There were warehouse windows and a mattress on the floor. And in this room, I would just sit down on the concrete floor and be filled with peace, Mm. deep, deep peace. And I told a friend of mine about this dream and she asked the question that, really turned everything upside down. She said, have you ever thought about looking for this room in real life? Mm. No, of, of course not. I've never had a dream and then thought, I'm going to go look for those people or that room the next day. But there was something about her question that I thought was kind of curious. Mm. It's, have you read uh, any of Joseph Campbell? He wrote um, like uh, The Power of Myth and The Hero's Journey, Hero with, uh, Hero with a Thousand Faces. He wrote all these like, incredible books about these epic journeys, essentially the structure behind the quest for the Holy Grail Mm. and the myths throughout time, even the great religions based on this idea of like a hero going out on a journey. And he talks about this, this idea of a call to adventure Mm. that all of us in our lives are called to adventure in some way. And I was reading that at the time. And then her question about, you know, going to look for this space, I began to wonder like, is this my call to adventure? Is this like something that I have to do? And so there's some play involved. It was ridiculous, but there's play. So I started looking on Craigslist for this room. And one day I saw it. Mm. I literally saw the room that I had been dreaming about in a photograph on the website. And I would say that I was surprised, but I also wasn't. Have you ever had something that you just knew had to happen? Something that was just inevitable? Yeah, absolutely. That was the feeling that I had. And when I saw it, it was more of a, of course, here we are. There was an open house the next day. I went and it was an apartment for rent in San Francisco. And I put in an application. I got Mm. the space. Two weeks later, I moved in. And on my first night there, I sat down, like kind of recreating that dream. I sat down on the concrete floor. And instead of being filled with that peace that I had in my dream, I unexpectedly began to panic. Mm. And I wondered what any of it was about because I was working full time as a designer at Mailbox. I wondered why I was having this dream. And so, I don't know, I just asked the room. And I said out loud, why am I here? Effectively, why did you bring me here? Yeah. And the room replied and the room said, it's time to paint. Mm. I had painted all the time as a little girl. I had painted off and on all through undergrad. Like I said, I had been, you know, sleeping at the art studio while applying to law school, that, that whole situation. Yeah. But um, somewhere along the way, as I got more and more into the commercial part of my journey, I just stopped doing this this communion with yeah. this thing that I loved. And so the next morning I went to the art supply store and I rebuilt my toolkit from the ground up. And mm. I went back to this white room and I began to paint. Now, I was still at Mailbox. I was still working as the design lead, you know, crazy hours. And so any time that I wasn't designing icons and screens and logos, 
I was at home covering everything in paint and I was making mm. a mess. I was making tons of mistakes. I was, it was really, really an unsustainable lifestyle I had gotten myself into. But eventually on that day, when we released Mailbox to the World, I realized that something was just emerging from this white room with all mm. this paint. I just felt like I had an ocean of work on the other side if I just had more time. And I think because I was already logging, like, a serious number of hours every week. I, I trusted that I had the practice mm -hmm. willing to put into it yeah. to keep going. It wasn't a fantasy. It was very much a, a daily occurring drive. Mm -hmm. And so a year after I quit, so I'd been basically making work silently and fumbling, you know, as, yeah. as we do uh, in that room, I began, of course, learning things mm -hmm. and then meeting up with all of you all on the Alive Tribe learning more things and meeting all these other people who kept raising their hands and saying, yeah, me too, mm -hmm. me too. And it was the first time that I began to realize that in each of our unique creative journeys, while there is so much struggle that is very personal, none of us are alone in that struggle. We mm -hmm. share it. Yeah. And there is so much wisdom and knowledge from people who've gone through it and people who are further along on their journeys. And we walk all of us together this road, which is is many paths that are concurrently moving forward. Yeah. So I started learning a lot of, of tips and tricks and really good questions. And I put them all together into a post on Medium. Mm. And the essay was titled, The Crossroads of Should and Must. And this was one year after I had left Mailbox. And it was kind of like the first thing I had um, really put out there that kind of showed what I was doing since, yeah. since you know having a, a career that I totally stepped away from. And I, I share things online every day all the time, but there was something about this post that happened that had never happened with anything else within uh, like two weeks. Mm -hmm. It was tweeted to over 5 million people wow. and read by over a quarter of a million readers. Jeez. It got picked up and syndicated all over the place. And the designer in me, this is like the spirit of, of, of designing and curiosity began to wonder like, okay, cool. I know why this resonates with me, but What's happening? Mm -hmm. Why is this resonating with all these other people? Why are people sharing it with friends, with colleagues, family? What, what's behind this? And so I spent some time digging into it a little bit further and I decided to extend it into a book. Mm. So that was April 8th of last year when I wrote the post. And then in a very, very fast birthing process, um, the book was released on April 8th of 2015. Wow. One year to the day. <laughs> That's insane. Isn't that wild? So the book came out very quickly. I think it was just ready to come out. Mm -hmm. And half the book is um, words and half the book is images. And I paired up with uh, Workman Publishing here in New York. And they really, really understood that this thing was, I mean, it is a book, but it's really just like, a canvas, or at least that's how I felt about it, that just spills across, I guess, 176 pages. Look at me thinking like, oh, I don't know how many pages are in here. I know exactly how many pages are in this book. <laughs> but like every page I got to just paint. And all of the questions that I was asking, and, and really I think the book is more of a collection of, of questions than it is answers. And it's all based on uh, Joseph Campbell's model for the hero's journey. Mm. And so now when I look at it, what's so cool about it being out in the world is that it's a tool yeah. and it's filled with um, everything from how to deal with finances to how to create space in our lives for must, how to deal with vulnerability. It's effectively, um, mm. it, it contains a lot of tools that have helped me and tools that are actually still helping me. Like just two days ago, I did one of the activities in the book and I thought like, is this lame? I'm like doing my own, my own activity. And it, and it was really cool because now my journey is in a different spot yeah. and, um, and the struggle continues and yeah. day in and day out. And so, um, having it as a tool to help me to get to that place of, of being able to write it was really incredible. But now what's great is seeing other people use it yeah. and seeing other people's journeys and what it's doing. I just, I just met this teacher who wasn't a teacher. She was doing something mm -hmm. else. And after she read the Medium post, she stepped away from her job and she just knew that she had to teach. Mm -hmm. And she decided to get a job at General Assembly. And she oh. has been teaching at General Assembly. 
And she shared all of this at the end of a Creative Mornings talk. And then two of her students came up to me afterwards, like tearful, Mm. thanking me for writing this post that gave them the coolest, most amazing teacher that's amazing. They'd ever had. That's amazing. And that's when things start to get really, really amazing is to see the change that it's causing in other people's lives. And I'm actually looking over your shoulder at a poster that you have on the wall. I want to read it out loud. It says, change your thoughts and change your world. And people are doing that and their stories are courageous and incredible. Mm. That's amazing. That's a great story. And it's, it's powerful and I acknowledge you for like writing this and being the change that people are seeing in the world. That's, that's so cool. Now we have, we have a few minutes left. Uh, so I want to ask you a couple more questions about the book. Um, I, I guess the big thing is what is the big idea of the crossroads between should and must that, that's gonna, that people can walk away with? Well, we arrive at this crossroads over and over again throughout our lives. It's not a one-time mm-hmm you know, forever decision. And so we have to continue to choose must over and over again. So on one hand, there's should. Should is all of the expectations that other people layer upon us. You should do this, you should do that. And one way you can get to know your shoulds is if you take out a piece of paper and you start at the top and write down those belief systems that you have in your head. Uh, You can literally fill in the sentences. You should never, you should know better Mm. than to, you should always And then go through those lines one by one and um, begin to get to know them better. Ask them, uh, you know, when did I first pick this should up? When did I first integrate it into my decision making? Mm. Is this belief still true for me, for who I've become in my life? And the most important of all is, do I want to keep holding Mm. on to it? Uh, Does this continue to serve my evolving truths, my evolving nature as as a person? And maybe it does. And then in that moment, it ceases to be a should and becomes Mm. a must. Or maybe you say, wow, you have served your purpose. I kindly set you down now. I want to create more and more space in my life for must. And must is who you are, what you believe, what you know to be true when you are alone with your truest, Mm. most authentic self. Must is um, that je ne sais quoi. Must is this thing that you have conviction around doing, around pursuing, Uh, that maybe you can't explain with your brain, but you feel almost in your spirit. Mm. Must, a friend of mine said the other day, must feels like being in love when you know, you just know. And um, must is, sounds wonderful and really courageous people throughout time have chosen it. Uh, One of the stories I, I read with a, you know, heavy heart is the life of Van Gogh. He, um, in his, in his letters to his brother, Theo, he talks about his struggle with must, right? He had to paint his way. He saw the world totally different and the world didn't enjoy what he had yeah. to offer. And it wasn't until the world could catch up a long time later that his work began to be understood. And there's this one quote that he shared with his brother, and I'd, I'd love to read yeah. it. He said, um, as he talks about really being unseen in his life. And I, I like this because sometimes being seen is, is so important to all of us. And what do we do if we feel unseen? What do we do if we feel like our work isn't heard, if it's not getting out there? Uh, what solace is there in that? And he describes such a feeling saying, what am I in the eyes of most people? A non-entity, an eccentric or an unpleasant person somebody who has no position in society and will never have. In short, the lowest of the low. All right then, even if that were absolutely true, then I should like to show by my work what such an eccentric, such a nobody has in his heart. Wow. Wow. So choosing must, it sounds amazing, but it's really hard. And a lot of times it means we have to confront the world of should, we have to stop choosing mm-hmm. it and gaining awareness about that is a beautiful, beautiful process. Yeah. And then stepping into must, we have lots of questions about practicality, about finances and um, all of our obligations mm-hmm. and how to make yeah. it work. And one of the great things about going from a, a post on the internet into a, 
a, a fully colored book is that there was time and space to really, really dig into those vulnerabilities and the practicality of how to make must sustainable over mm. time, specifically really around finances and obligations and time. Yeah, I mean, those are the biggest obstacles, the biggest puzzle pieces to like put together to make the big picture. Yes, but the cool thing is, is that as soon as you start to see money as a game <laughs> and time is something that you can get very creative with, you can begin piecing your efforts together in a way that really supports your must. It just takes a bit, maybe sandbox time is a great time to say like, okay, cool. I'm going to like figure out uh, one of the activities around finances that I just did this week is if you get a piece of paper and write at the top money and on one column, write must have money. And on the other column, write nice to have money. <laughs> this is highly scientific. And if you go through and list out under your finances, like what's must have? Is living in a safe neighborhood a must have? Is um, buying a new car a must have? Is paying off student loans a must have? Supporting X number of people, where do those things fall? Is going on a vacation a must have? Go through and start to look at your finances. And I think, uh, spoiler alert, you will probably find that your must have list is a lot smaller yeah. than you think it is. And the smaller you can get that and the lower you can lower your burn rate, things start to get pretty cool with your must. You suddenly begin to change your understanding around what's possible financially to, to get things yeah. done. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great exercise. And there's, I'm sure, a ton more in the book, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, one yes. other quick question about the book is, how can one explore their must if they don't know what that is and they can't find it? Cause I talked to a lot of people who are like, I don't know what I love. I don't know what I'm passionate about. You know, do you have any advice for people? Totally, totally pick up the phone and call your mom, mm. call your mom or someone who knew you when you were little and ask them to tell you stories about what you were like. Oh. Nowhere is the essence of must more purely exhibited than when we're kids. What were you like as a kid? What did you love to do? Ask them to tell you stories. And I know this sounds cheesy. Take notes. <laughs> trust me, trust me. It works so much better if you do it like that. Take notes on a piece of paper. And maybe all the stories won't make sense at first. But these stories contain your earliest seeds of must. Wow. That was beautiful. <laughs> That's, I've, I've never heard that before. And that is a great, great exercise to do. So thank you. Mm -hmm. I've got to wrap it up. So one last question I love to ask every guest is what does live inspiration mean to you? Live inspiration means to me, live your truth, mm. live your must. And what I love about the word live, it isn't dream, it isn't wish, it isn't hope, it's live, it's do. Mm -hmm. It is get out there and live it, embody it day in and day out. Um, I keep looking at this poster, Nick, change your thoughts, change your world. This idea of doing something about it mm. today. Yeah. And must often is a mountain very, very far away and it's beautiful and we want to climb all the way to the summit must often is this beautiful dream that we can see expanding over our lives. However, the act of dreaming about getting to the top of that mountain is very different than the act of actually getting there, which is put one foot in front of the other. Mm. Live it every day. And what does that look like every day? It might mean just doing one thing. Just honoring your must in one small way, taking one step, setting aside 10 minutes. That doesn't seem as romantic as the mountain. And I think that's a shift that we have to make in our mind, that there is a large vision that is tugging at us. And then there is a daily work, a daily commitment, a daily practice to living your must one step mm. at a time. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you. How can we find you on the internet? If you want to learn more about the book, head on over to choosemust.com. Mm. And if you find me on Twitter, I'm at L Luna. And 
uh, tweeting about all things book and art and life and adventure related. Yeah, and obviously you can see her work on the IG. Totally. El Luna, I assume. Yes. Got it. Cool. Well, I thank you for coming on the show. It was amazing. I'm totally inspired. Thank you, Nick. It's so wonderful to see you. You too. Thank you guys so much for listening to today's episode of Shop Talk Radio with El Luna. I'm your host, Nick Onkin, and this podcast is all about you. And if you're inspired today, we'd love it if you could help us out by sharing the podcast, leaving us a good review over on iTunes, and that will help us to keep going with this. Also, don't forget to check out the show notes over at shoptalkradio.com slash EP50. We have the photo shoot that Elle and I did uh, when we record the podcast as well. And I'd love to see where you're listening to the podcast. So you can hashtag shoptalkradio at replyme at Nick Onkin on Instagram. And with that, we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.